Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly, right? I love those songs. I pray that every single day. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come today, come right now. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. We're in the book of Mark, chapter 8. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark, chapter 8, as we continue our journey through the book of Mark. We're in chapter 8 this week. And we continue to see Jesus' ministry here on earth. And we see that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus has come, and he's brought the kingdom of God to the earth in his coming. And we've seen all the signs of that, haven't we? How he's healing the lame, how he's preaching the gospel to the poor, how he's making the blind to see and the deaf to hear. He's casting out demons and forgiving sins of those who trust in him. Hallelujah! The earth praises him. He's also doing some crazy stuff like eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Oh my. He's shattering the self-righteous religious beliefs of the religious and political leaders of the day. And we're now here in chapter 8. And we see continued stories of Jesus and his miracle working, and also continued confrontation with the religious and political leaders of his time. Now we can look at each one of these accounts specifically and see that Jesus once again feeds thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and some small fish. We've seen that before. He's going to do that again in our text today. We can also see his continued confrontation with the Pharisees, and the religious and political leaders of the day. We'll see that in the narrative today. In chapter 8, we can see his healing of a blind man at Bethsaida, and then Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, and instructions on being a true disciple. All of these accounts are here in Mark chapter 8. And I want us to look into those and learn from them specifically, but I also want us to see the bigger picture of the narrative of Mark that's developing really to a tipping point right here in chapter 8. It is here in chapter 8 where the disciples have their darkest hour of hardness of heart and unbelief. You may think, what are you talking about, the disciples? They were unbelieving? They had hard hearts? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yes, they followed Jesus. They followed him. But their hearts didn't always believe. They didn't always have faith. There are many people who follow Jesus that have no faith. And we're going to see that in the text today. And it's here in chapter 8 where the light of faith in Christ is ignited in them and culminates with Peter's confession of who Jesus Christ truly is and Jesus' blessing on it. And so we're going to dig into the first part of chapter 8 today. And then we'll finish up with it next time. So let's dig in. Chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus is going to feed a whole lot of people with not a lot of food, (laughs) once again. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, 
How can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? And he asked them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, or having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat and his disciple, with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And so let's look at what's going on here in, in this section. Once again, there's this great crowd, thousands of people crowding to see Jesus. They've been with him now for three days. He's been teaching them, healing their sick and the lame, like the good shepherd that he is. It's now the third day, and they've been with him, and they're in a place with no food. They have nothing to eat. They've had nothing to eat. This is a desolate place. So it's a little different than last time, right? If you remember the last account, there was green grass. They could go into the villages to get something to eat. But this is different. This is a wilderness, desert, desolate place that they're at. And so they've had nothing to eat for nearly three days. Or, you know, maybe they brought some stuff with them, and maybe they've used all that up. But they've been with Jesus for three days. The situation's getting pretty bad. No food. We're in a desolate place. Time to send them away so that uh, they can go get something to eat. Now, Jesus was probably hungry, too. Now, he was fully man. He hadn't probably had much to eat for three days. He was probably hungry, too. He did get hungry, you know. He was able to fast for 40 days. Then the word says he got hungry, so maybe he wasn't so hungry. <clears throat> but he was probably hungry, too. And he could be rightfully annoyed by this and send them all away, right? Time for you guys to leave. It's been three days, right? Everybody's healed, right? Everybody's good. We've been teaching. Okay, it's time to move on. Go ahead. He could, be, he could rightfully send them all away, but he doesn't. In fact, he does the opposite. And just as we saw in the passage before, he has compassion on them. That's what the text says. He had compassion on them. Instead of sending them away, he spends more time with them, ministering to them, and meeting their needs. It starts to get late, and his, his disciples, not so compassionate, they're like, we've got to send all these people away, Jesus. Time for them to go. Send them away so they can get something to eat. This place is desolate. There's nowhere to get food. Nowhere here. <clears throat> now, Jesus knows if he sends them away hungry, as the text says, many will faint on their way because they've come from, a very far, they've come from far away. Some of them have come from very far away. And he knows if he sends them away in their current state, some of them aren't going to make it. They're going to faint on the way. Now, what's interesting here, at least I think it's interesting, is the disciples have seen all of Jesus' miracles, right? I mean, there was a similar situation not too long ago, a couple chapters back, and Jesus took care of that with five loaves and two fish. Do you remember that? 
wasn't that long ago in the narrative, wasn't that long ago in the, in the ministry of Jesus. They've seen all his miracles, yet in this moment, they are still very earthly-minded, aren't they? They start complaining about being in a desolate place with no way to get bread to feed all the people. I mean, can you believe their response? When I read their response, I'm like, are you kidding me? Seriously? I mean, Jesus just did this. Why wouldn't the response be, hey, hey, Jesus, we're in one of those situations again, you know, kind of not a lot of food. Can, we got a few loaves and a couple little fish over here. You think you can do that loaves and fishes thing again and take care of this one too? This would be a good time, Jesus, to, to do that. That's the response I would expect, but no. Jesus, this is a bad situation. You got to send these people away. Not enough food. We can't feed them all. We got to do something. We got to get them out of here. Send them away. Totally earthly response. They still don't get it. And that's what, that's what Mark's trying to point out for us here. Although they were following Jesus physically, they still didn't get what he was doing. They still didn't fully understand what he could do, what he was capable of. They still didn't fully trust him, even in the most dire, difficult situations. They weren't resting in the grace and power of Jesus in these times. They were trying to figure out all the earthly ways they could solve the problem. And so what does Jesus do? <clears throat> he has them gather up the little bit of food that's on hand, this time seven loaves of bread and a few small fish, and he miraculously once again feeds nearly 10,000 people with that little amount of food. There's 4,000 men here, and Matthew's account, it's a parallel account, he says there's 4,000 men, not including the women and the children. So roughly this could be around 10,000 people if you counted them all up. And with that little amount of food, they all eat again until they are full. They're all satisfied. And this time he takes up seven large baskets of leftovers to spare. So not only does he feed them at that moment and meets their needs. Hey, guys, I got uh, to-go boxes for uh, everybody here. I got to-go bags. Got seven large baskets of uh, leftovers. Make sure you get a to-go bag on the way back. You've come a long way. I don't want you to be a fainting on the way, okay? He takes care of their immediate need and even their, their future need of getting home. There's a difference in the text here in the, in the Greek. You can see these are seven large baskets. In the last narrative, there was, it was normal-sized baskets. It's noted here these are very large baskets now of the leftovers, and there's more of it. So plenty for everybody to take home on their journey home. Seven full, large baskets of leftovers. So again, I asked the question. I asked this the last time. I preached the, the message on the last one. You know, if, uh, the last time he fed the 5,000. If Jesus can meet a need like that in a moment's time, why, why is it so hard for us to trust him with our own needs? I'm still astonished by that in my own life, in my own faith walk. Why, when I get into the situation of, of, of like this, it seems like a difficult, desperate situation, my earthly mind starts going through all the things I need to do in an earthly way to get out of the mess. Instead of looking to Jesus and resting in him and crying out to him as the psalmist we just read wrote about. Cry out to the Lord and he hears me. I'm so much like these disciples. And you are too. 
And you know you are. The problem gets right there in our face, right? And we just can't, we can't see around it. We can't see over it. We can't see under it. It's like, here's the problem. And all the while, Jesus is, is there. He's reaching out to us. He's like, I got this. Will you just look to me? Will you just trust me? Will you just rest in my arms? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Why is that so hard for us? You can trust Jesus to take care of all of your needs. He, he, he even said in other, other parables, you know, why do you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? The birds of the air need food. God takes care of that for them. God knows you need clothes to wear. God knows you need these things. He's going to take care of all of our needs. We don't have to worry about those things. Now, he's not saying we don't have, have to work. <laughs> Just sit around and wait for it to fall from the sky. That's not what he's saying either. But we don't have to worry about them. We don't have to be anxious about them. That's our tendency, isn't it? Our heart's tendency is to be anxious and worried and not have faith. That anxiety, that worry, that fear that strikes our hearts, that is the opposite of faith. That is the lack of faith in our lives. And here the disciples get into this situation. They have no faith. They're anxious. They're worried. Jesus, where are we going to get all food enough to, to feed all these people? We don't have enough money. We don't have blah, 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 blah. I got this, guys. How many loaves do we have? Go count them up for me. And the numbers are important, right? God knows math. <laughs> these things are counted for a reason. Seven loaves, few small fish. Seven full large baskets are left over. God takes care of our needs. We don't have to worry about worldly things. We don't have to be anxious about these things. We can trust in Jesus and cry out to him in our time of need, just as the psalmist wrote that we just read about. We can have faith that he will provide. Now, this passage has echoes from the Old Testament, just as the one in Mark 6 did, of the prophet Moses and the prophet Ezekiel, echoes that show us who Jesus really is. He's more than a mere prophet or a miracle worker. He is God. And Mark wants us to see that. Jesus is God, not just a good teacher. You're going to hear a lot of people, you ask Jesus, you know, who do you think Jesus is? Oh, he's a great teacher. He was a good person. He was maybe a prophet from God. Those, those are all, all wrong answers. Jesus is God, and he's demonstrating that he is. Jesus feeding this mass of people in this desolate place is a similar picture to God providing the manna for the Israelites during the exodus from Egypt. And he's demonstrating that to the crowds. He's living that out. He's showing them that here in a desert wilderness, just as God provided the manna for you through Moses, Jesus is providing bread for you. He is God. He provides just what they need exactly when they need it. So remember God's message through the prophet Ezekiel that we read when we saw the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. Ezekiel writes this in Ezekiel chapter 34. He says, I will feed my sheep on the mountains of Israel. This is God speaking through, through Ezekiel. 
I will feed my sheep on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on, my, on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so the true shepherd in Ezekiel's prophecy, whose identity is revealed through his act of feeding his sheep, is the Lord God himself. And we saw that in Mark 6. And he's demonstrating it once again here in Mark 8. We can see when Mark tells us that Jesus has compassion on the people and feeds them in a desolate place in the wilderness, that Jesus is acting as the Lord God. Jesus is the good shepherd that cares for his own. And he cares for you. Never forget that. He cares for you. He knows you by name. Every hair on your head is numbered. He knows when any one of them falls out, and a lot of mine have been falling out lately, he knows all about that. (laughs) He knows it. Nothing passes his, his, his mind. He is the good shepherd. And so he cares for and has compassion on the multitude, and he will care for and have compassion on you also. Even in your greatest time of need, he knows it. He has compassion. So trust him. Cry out to him. Put all that fear and worry and anxiety of the world behind you, away from you. And trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Look at verse 11. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. And so Jesus has gotten in the boat now. He's gone to a different region. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. And he got in the boat again and went to the other side. And so we see here in, in verse 10 that Jesus has gone to the, another region, the district of Dalmanutha. In verse 11, Jesus has arrived once more at this western, more Jewish, though still ethnically mixed area of the Sea of Galilee. And while the Pharisees, while he's there, the Pharisees come to him to pick another fight. They love to do that. They're really irritated with him by this point. They, they're beyond irritated. They want to kill him. And so every time he shows up, they're looking to challenge him and seeking ways to destroy him. And so here, they're here to pick another fight with him. And by this time, they've had more than enough of Jesus, and they're working even with their own enemies to kill him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees never really got along, but boy, you know, it came to to killing Jesus, they're on the same team. The Pharisees and the Herodians never really got along, but when it comes to Jesus, they're on the same team. So you got Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, all the religious and political leaders of the time are now allying with each other, in an alliance with each other, they're on the same team, to get Jesus, 
kill him. I've had more than enough of this rabble rouser. It's causing all kinds of problems for them. <clears throat> now, considering how many miracles Jesus had already performed, it's surprising at first that the Pharisees would ask for another because they ask him for a sign from heaven to test him, right? Show us a sign from heaven, Jesus. Show us a sign from heaven, they ask. But we need to understand that miracles were quite common in the ancient times, whether in reality or in people's imagination. And the fact that a person performed miracles didn't make them necessarily an exceptional person. It was kind of a common thing, people claiming to do miracles. And then when the story gets around, you know, legend becomes what it is, and they weren't maybe what really happened, but the story is great. And so, like, did you hear the one about so-and-so? Hey, I got to go see him. And so this was somewhat common in that time. And so what the Pharisees wanted was not another healing or exorcism or feeding, but they asked what they asked for, a sign from heaven. So this is a bit different. Something they could see or hear in the sky, like a voice from the sky or a vision in the sky. They're asking for some sign from heaven that they could see that would vindicate Jesus, that would validate Jesus as truly being sent from God. The word heaven in a Jewish is a Jewish substitute for God's name. So they, don't, they never said God's name. That would be blasphemy. And so saying a sign from heaven is like, show us a sign from God directly. And they usually took place in the, the sky. And they wanted one of those types of signs. They wanted God to vindicate Jesus before they would accept him. Now Jesus knows their faithless hearts. He even calls them brood of vipers. And he refuses to engage with them any further, much less provide for them the sign from heaven they request. Over and over again, he calls them out. You brood of vipers. He, they didn't get along. <laughs> now, it's interesting, too, when you read the text, the, the, the only people Jesus gets angry with and basically insults, it's the religious leaders. He doesn't get angry with the tax collectors. He doesn't get angry with the woman at the well. He doesn't get angry with the so-called sinners. He shows compassion on the multitudes. But when it comes to these religious leaders, he has no patience for them. Because they should know better, right? They should know the scriptures. They should know that the scriptures point to him. And instead of receiving him, they hate him and they want to kill him. And so no sign will be given to them. In verse 11, in the Greek, you find the word here translated test, which is also translated tempted in chapter 1, verse 13. So what Mark is perhaps suggesting is that the Pharisees were in league with Satan at this moment trying to tempt Jesus. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? <clears throat> and turned the rock into bread. You can do that, Jesus. You're hungry. But Jesus did not have anything to do with that. And so here, these Pharisees are here to test Jesus, to tempt Jesus. 
at this point in his ministry. Just go ahead, Jesus. Show them all who you are. And let this be done. And this was not God's plan. He's like, no, absolutely not. I will not do this. Especially for you faithless Pharisees. And look at verse 12. Notice the frustration in Jesus' emotion. It says he sighed deeply in his spirit. He sighed deeply because of the hardness of heart revealed by this request. And that hardness of their hearts, it wounded him sorely down to his very spirit. Their hearts were so hardened against him. They had no faith at all. No faith at all. And therefore, no sign will be given. No sign. And the expression here, this generation, those words, those are echoes of the warped and crooked generation of Deuteronomy 32, <coughs> Psalm 95. And so he's bringing those words to the forefront here. And so these, these Pharisees are abandoned to the destiny which they, by their hardness of heart, have chosen for themselves. And then he leaves them. Like, no, no sign, I'm out of here. No faith, no works, he's gone. He just leaves. Jesus does his miracles, he performs his, his great works where there is faith. Where there is faith. No faith here, and so he moves on. Now, look at verse 14. And this is really the climax of the story in chapter 8. <clears throat> now, when they had forgotten, now they had forgotten to bring bread. Verse 14. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? This is the climax of the disciples' dullness of heart. All of the, the texts we've been reading have been leading up to this, this point in the story. This is the climax of their hardness of heart, their own unbelief in their hearts. And we see here the disciples' unbelief provides a link with the previous section, which emphasizes the unbelief of the Pharisees. And the reference to bread provides a link with the one before that, where he feeds the, the 4,000. This is all related. It's all linked together. That's why when I encourage you to read the Bible, you know, don't, don't just read like one little verse or one little you know, verse or two. Read a chapter. Read multiple chapters. 
All of this in its context tells the bigger narrative and the bigger story, the bigger picture of what's going on here. So these things are all connected together. And they were to beware or be careful of the teaching of the Pharisees and of Herod. That evil teaching was a powerful influence and spread like yeast through the whole land as yeast does in a lope, a lump of, of dough. That's what he's warning them about. Beware of that false teaching. Beware of that bad teaching. Those bad ideas, that bad teaching, it spreads. And he uses yeast or leaven as the illustration of that. And if any of you have made bread, you know how yeast works. Leaven is yeast. You put a little bit of yeast in the lump of dough, and it spreads. And it makes the dough rise. But the illustration here as, is that it, a little bit is all it takes, and it spreads. And so he's saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of, Hev and of Herod, who was the political leader of the day. Now they thought, the disciples thought what? What did they think? That Jesus was mad at them because they'd forgotten to take along bread. And they're worried about the lack of bread cakes. They're in the boat. They got one cake of bread. Now, <laughs> seriously, guys? Are you even kidding me? He just fed 4,000 with seven loaves. You got one cake here. Do you not think he could take care of the 12 of you guys? And they're all... Man, we didn't bring bread. Oh, you forgot the bread? What's wrong with you, Judas? Well, I had the money, but you can imagine all the chatter that's going on. Matthew, you're the tax collector. Why don't you get the bread? And all this is happening, and Jesus is like, are you seriously talking about bread? <laughs> Unbelievable, right? <clears throat> so they're worried about lack of bread. Their main problem here was not their lack of bread. Their main problem here was their lack of faith. It doesn't exist at this point in their lives. They are following Jesus physically, but they're not following him in their heart and soul. Not yet. Or they wouldn't be fighting over bread here. <clears throat> and, and we know this. We get insight into this. Matthew 16 is a parallel passage. You can read that this afternoon. I encourage you to. And in, in that narrative, Jesus calls them men of little faith. It's like, oh, you of little faith. Seriously? We're talking about bread? So with Jesus right there in their midst, right there in the boat, the very one who had given proof of his power in two miraculous feedings, they just saw them. Should they not have been confident he would take care of them? Of course, but no, they couldn't see past the problem in front of their own face. No bread. No bread. Now, Jesus' purpose in mentioning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, watch out for that, he knows their hearts. He knows where they are. And they're dangerously close to unbelief, and he knows it. Nothing is hidden from him. And so he warns them, hey, watch out. I can see what's going on in your hearts. You're not much different than 
those Pharisees and the Herodians at this point, disciples, you better, you better be on guard. You better watch out for that, for that bad teaching. And he warns them. He warns them. <clears throat> In verses 17 through 21, he rebukes the disciples' preoccupation with these material things. And he asks them a series of questions. <clears throat> The third, the last one in verse 17, and the fourth in verse 18, recalls the rebuke of ancient Israel in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. So when he says, having eyes to see, do you not see? Having ears to hear, do you not hear? Those are stinging words. Are your hearts hardened also, he says? Now to the disciples who know their scriptures, Those are stinging words. Those are words God speaks against Israel in his time of greatest rebuke. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says this, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. These are judgments against Israel for its unbelief. Psalm 95, verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. So these are the words, hardened heart. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Had the disciples not just seen his work? Jeremiah 5.21, declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. And he's saying these words to the disciples? Ezekiel 12.2, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. Who have what? Eyes to see, but do not see. Who have ears to hear, but do not hear. For why? They are a rebellious people. The unbelief of the disciples was bordering on that of Jesus' enemies. He had heard, they had heard Jesus say these things about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you can imagine them cheering on the sideline, yeah, Jesus, you tell them. And then suddenly in the boat, he's saying it to them. Now imagine yourself in that situation for a moment. That is a stinging rebuke. That would just cut me to the heart. All this time I've been following Jesus, all this time, I think I'm okay. I'm good. I'm with Jesus. He's right there. And I'm, I'm with him. And then he turns to me, looks me in the eye, and says, do you have eyes to see but not see? You have ears to hear but you don't hear? Is your heart hardened also? <gasps> oh, my goodness. And that's where the disciples are in this moment. also in the Old Testament, remembering was a major element in Israel's religious experience. And Jesus asked them, what does he ask her? Do you not remember? 
He's using that word. He's calling that to mind. Do you not remember? Remember, disciples, what you've seen and heard, and remember and believe. Have faith. Do you not remember? If the five bread cakes was more than enough for 5,000 people and seven bread cakes more than enough for 4,000, facts which the disciples here and now reaffirm, because he asked them, how many, how many loaves did we have? How many baskets did you take up? And they answer, so they remembered. They knew the facts, right? And so it is with us. We know, we could call to mind, oh, I remember when Jesus did this for me. I remember this. I remember that. They, rem they had the knowledge, but they didn't have the faith. Not at this point. Not at this point. And so he asks them. And by performing all these miracles, Jesus did more than feed hungry people and more than suggest spiritual provision for the Jews, and then for the Gentiles. He intended to show the disciples that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And after all that they had seen and heard, they still didn't believe this great truth. But there is hope. Verse 21, the word yet suggests that there was still hope for the disciples, that they would yet understand. And I ask the question to us today, you know, where, where are you in this spiritual journey? Where are you? What about you? There's hope for each and every one of us today. There is hope. Given all that you've seen and heard in the text about Jesus, do you still not understand Maybe you're following Jesus like the disciples followed Jesus. Maybe you're here because you follow mom and dad here. Because that's just the thing to do. We go to church because that's what mom and dad do. Maybe that's why you're here and you follow them and think that, oh, I'm good. They got Jesus, so I got Jesus, and everything's going to be all right. That's not how it works. Your faith must be your own. You can't ride on the coattails of grandma's faith or mom's or dad's faith. Your faith must be your own. And so what about you today? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Or do you see and not perceive? and hear but not understand. Is your heart hardened like the disciples? I pray it's not. Don't leave here with a hardened heart. And for, for anyone here who hasn't trusted in Jesus, make this today, right now, your day of salvation. Put your faith in him. Have eyes to see and ears to hear and have a heart that's soft and open to receive Jesus as the treasure of your life. Do that today. Don't waste another minute of your life without him. And for those of us who have believed, oh God, strengthen our faith. I pray that seeing these things, seeing Jesus work in this way will reassure us and give us hope 
that yes, I do have problems. Yes, life is a struggle. Life is hard. But God's right there, and I can rest in him. I don't have to worry or be anxious about any of these things. I can trust in Jesus, who is God, who loves me and will care for me. And our faith will be strengthened in him today. And so, brothers and sisters, let us all leave here with stronger faith in Christ. Following him, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we get into these situations where the problems are right in our face, we just look to him and say, Jesus, what would you have me do? And just rest in him. Rest in him.